Well, welcome to the Great Men Podcast with Mr. Oscar Ortiz. Mr. Oscar Ortiz, welcome back. Thank you so much, Alex. I was looking forward to this moment. (laughs) I've been looking forward to having you back on ever since we had you on the first time to sort of uh, tell the audience who you are and what you're about and uh, sort of the practical application you take to to, uh, expressing your philosophy of life. Um, and so, so something I found very interesting about this engaging in this project on exploring great men through great works of literature in particular today, Herodotus's histories in the first 94, uh, uh, chat or paragraphs or so you chose, uh, Croesus or Croesus as our, our Greek, uh, our learned Greek <laughs> friends would tell us. Um, and so I thought that was so interesting because, um, of course, there are several reasons why we might want to talk about Croesus, right? He's from the 6th century. He was known to be massively wealthy. He had a son named Attis who died to a man named Adrastus who had a grandfather named Midas, but was not that famous Midas who seemed to be just as rich as this, uh, this uh, Croesus character. Uh, he also had a campaign against Persia based on a Delphic oracle that he misinterpreted, hearing a great empire will... Uh, Perish, not understanding that that could be, of course, his own. He had a famous conversation with Solon where he found out, call no man happy until he is dead, which, of course, he learns himself. He himself is rescued from death um, at a signal from the Persian king Cyrus and himself, having once been king, becomes slave and like, like Joseph to the Egyptian king or Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he goes from the height of heights to the lows of lows and so we could have started with anybody, with Alexander or Plato or Socrates or Caesar. Croesus, Mr. Oscar Ortiz. Why Croesus? Well, as I mentioned in our um, earlier conversation, it was actually um, kind of a curiosity of mine regarding uh, sayings that we use, saying that, sayings that we use in English um, that are popular in kind of the American language. And uh, I, I don't recall that I mentioned any of those while we were talking earlier. Uh, so I just to, just to mention a few bite the dust. Well, that's a saying that's very popular. Uh, there's actually a song that was made out of it that was very popular. Another one that, bites the dust by Queen. One bites the dust. Yes, yes. Uh, which, which actually comes from Homer, right? So uh, Homer uses it in the Iliad uh, fairly often to uh, describe another one biting the dust uh, in his battle scenes. Uh, so Croesus, the the saying is richest Croesus. Um, I heard someone say it uh, recently, I think in about about three weeks ago, and I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. It's very rare for me to find someone who actually uses the term, and it made me wonder, does that saying still have any, uh, does the history behind the saying still have any currency? So that's how I got into the whole thing, this whole thing of wanting to look into creases. Um, But I do, I do think, go ahead. See, there, I mean, I could see in the phrase a great irony being that being as rich as Croesus is someone who is at the moment rich, but is doomed to lose all those riches at some point. And so it's interesting because I see, I see part of the lesson of Croesus being almost sort of a proto-Christian message and just that the, the king is the one who becomes a slave and the one who is a king is the one who is least able to see that which will uh, bring about his downfall, but once he is a slave, he has a heightened perspective that makes one wonder whether he is uh, not in some way better as a slave 
than he was <laughs> as a king, um, just or wiser in any case, wiser mm-hmm. that it is almost as if it were the power and the wealth that he had that kept him from understanding some fundamental aspects of the world that he would later be exposed to um, without understanding why that was happening. So, so for instance, he, he could not possibly envision a world in which he would lose the Persian empire um, to Cyrus and he ends up becoming Cyrus's slave. And so it is precisely because of his inability to understand the messages that are given to him uh, and his inability to understand that through the flow of time, as Shakespeare says, and I guess he didn't have access to Shakespeare, man plays many (laughs) roles um, throughout time. Uh, And so that was a butcher. I mean, that was a tremendous paraphrase, but um, it's almost (laughs) as if what, what Croesus loses in material wealth, he gains in sort of insight or spiritual wealth by the end of it. And, and, and he offers to us sort of a full picture of humanity. He, his life itself is like a shield of Achilles, of Achilles. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, correct, correct. So, um, yes. Um, and I think that having started, just uh, to take a few steps backwards real fast, Alex. Yeah. Uh, Having been interested uh, with the sayings at first, I, I realized as I went back to study the story of Croesus, and I think that this came uh, very evident in our conversation last time, uh, was that in the life of Croesus, we could really draw a lot of learning uh, in terms of wisdom and good leadership and uh, what makes a man great and what makes a, a man not so great. And I think that, as you mentioned, Croesus is kind of a um, emblematic of this, um, the, the, the rise and fall of a great figure. And the, the, the ultimate question is, well, what, what could he have done differently that would have ensured his success and ensured his lineage and uh, made sure that um, we, would remind, we would remember him not as someone who failed, but as someone who... Uh, maintain a good political system uh, such as Cyrus, who seems to be the man who, uh, who, who uh, Croesus seems to be the one who's uh, kind of just ushering in the new age of Cyrus. Yeah, and he, I mean, he certainly, he certainly does that as a form of first enemy and then teacher slash advisor, um, sh- showing that he, he offers sort of a universal wisdom in that not only does his story apply to everybody or to the, the future, but even to his once direct enemy who he can now advise, who now trusts him oddly enough and spares him from death, saves him from death. Um, and so, well, well, I kind of want to go back to the point you were making about what could he have done differently? Um, and so, well, that strikes me as a difficult question to answer because it's um, it's mm-hmm. it strikes me as the culture at the time and that's uh, the sixth century uh, BCE is sort of a sporting culture in which uh, people wanted to go to war with each other. Um, and so I don't know that I would I would suggest that it was the intent or the bellicose intent that so much got him so much as his eagerness or his mm-hmm. desire. Well, two things actually. Now that I think of it. So two things he could have done. One, he could have mm-hmm. stymied his eagerness 
and could have patiently attempted to interpret the oracles that said that a great empire will fall if he attacks mm -hmm. Persia. The second thing he could have done is had a better understanding of how life works and not attempted to bribe the gods with exorbitant gifts, material mm -hmm. gifts. Like I think one of the giant cups that he gives to uh, Apollo at, uh, at um, Delphi is like 600 amphora large. That's 600 mm -hmm. large vases. It's incredible. Which, so, is precisely, which is precisely what wins him the reputation as being um, one of the wealthiest men of his time is all of these riches that end up somehow in the um, temple of Delphi. And uh, this spreads far and wide. And you, you think it's strange because uh, Cyrus was much greater than he was. Cyrus had a greater empire than he was. But it is Croesus who we remember uh, when we say as rich as Croesus. Yeah. And well, something about Croesus is that because, because when he talks to Solon, he doesn't understand that he doesn't understand that uh, call no man happy until he's dead because he uh, he doesn't understand that his empire may crumble during his life due to his leadership. Mm -hmm. It seems that this story is very similar to the merchant of Baghdad who tries to run from death and then so running from death meets death in the next city. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. and Croesus that seems to be precisely what it it he does. He tries to rig the game. He tries to get as many prophecies he's even called greedy for prophecies from delphi as possible but he fails to understand that even in getting more prophecies that won't add to his wisdom or the wisdom necessary to keep him from his fate and his ultimate fate will be death and that seems to be what he's trying to run from can he even bribe the gods with his wealth and the answer ends up of course being since he's a slave in the care of cyrus and ultimately a loser no and that seems to be the great thing he realizes and we realize alongside him that no matter how wealthy you are, you cannot, you will never be wealthy enough to prevent catastrophe befalling yourself. And the greatest catastrophe is actually believing that you can keep that from happening. Because then when catastrophe hits, not only does a catastrophe hit you, but your worldview falls apart too. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, now, I, I want to emphasize something you said there um, regarding death. And I, it just struck me that Croesus seems like the individual, the kind of person who dies twice. Mm. Um, one is his, again, he's running away from death. And strangely enough, he ends up dying. Um, if we're talking in terms of, I'm using uh, some Christian, Christian concepts here, or religious concepts. Mm. He seems to die to the old man, if you will, and have a conversion. And I, I think this is where the climax of the story of Croesus happens. And you can tell me if you agree or disagree on this or sure. not. But he's, um, he's been captured. He's lost his empire. And I think, uh, I think this is a good point to situate the conversation. Um, he is now brought to Cyrus, who is now above him and greater than him. So you can imagine all as a man, uh, the kind of pride, the crushed pride that Crease is experiencing at this moment uh, when he has lost everything. And he's tied to a stake with 14 other young boys who are going to be sacrificed at the pyre. Um, and here we have Croesus, 
right? Facing uh, his first death, if you will. And it seems as if this is the moment when he dies to the old self and we have a new crisis emerge afterwards. I don't know if you uh, wanted to read that passage or not so the audience understood a little more of how this happened. Um, well, I'd love to, but um, the fact is it's on my phone, which I use for this podcast at this point <laughs> because I, I couldn't get a copy sent to me soon enough to read through it. So well, I have it on the Kindle on my phone. But I, I do have one comment on that before we read it, yeah, which is what's incredible is that it is precisely the wisdom not taken by Croesus that ends up saving his life because it's Correct. Solon's name that he, Solon, the layer down of the laws of Athens who took 10 years off afterwards in order to avoid uh, going to Athens or in order to avoid having to change any of his laws. And um, saying Solon beneath his breath is what makes Cyrus take interest in what he's saying and ultimately stop the flames, which require a miracle in order to <laughs> stop uh, uh, Zeus apparently sending down uh, the rain in order to spare him. And so he's, he's burnt alive in a way symbolically and also baptized and, and another brought back to fi by fire and water right yes. so it is and, and he is also converted to the opposite existence right from king mm -hmm. above mm -hmm. all to slave uh, beneath all uh, um, so, Alex, remind me uh remind me once again uh, apollo because apollo does um, does represent something to the greeks as, as a god he represents um he's, i think he, the sun, archery, prophecy, medicinal arts, music, um, just to name a few things. Those are, those are some plague as well. Um, and it's sort what, of the shining light of consciousness. Yes. It, it, it all, it, when Herodotus mentions in the text that um, <clears throat> one of the accounts to the saving of Croesus as he's about to be burned is the coming down or the descending of Apollo to save him. I wonder if that's uh, symbolic of the, the wise words of Solon finally um, mm. having fruition in the soul mm. of Croesus. That's and, excellent. And having some kind of effect that uh, not only changes the man, but persuades those who listen and see the man as he's about to be killed. I mean, it's, it's almost comedic. Uh, I have the text here, if you don't mind me just reading it real fast. Um, no, please so do, please do, and then and then don't let me forget to mention that I think I have a good uh, I have good support to okay. great, to great. what you just said. Awesome. So here we go. So as Croesus stood there on the pyre, despite the horror of his predicament, <laughs> he thought of Solon and how divinely inspired he had been when he stated his maxim that no living human can be called truly happy and prosperous. Until then, he had remained quiet, but when this occurred to him, he sighed deeply and groaned and repeated aloud, Solon, three times. Cyrus heard this and ordered his interpreters to ask Croesus who was this man he had called by name. Croesus kept silent at first, but when they pressed him to answer, he said, a man to whom I would pay a fortune if only he could talk to all tyrants. And this has, right, this, this has an effect on the heart of uh, Cyrus himself, who we could, we could argue is a tyrant at this point, um, and makes um, Cyrus decide to save Croesus 
and actually make him part of his uh, contingency, right? His kind of his uh, advisor, which is remarkable. I would say I would say that it's also because Crease has become something like a figure of Apollo to him in that moment, because in that moment of saying that he has received wisdom from a man that he would give to any tyrant, he is saying that he has seen a truth that he wished he would have known while he was ruling, which boom is immediately of importance to Cyrus, who is currently leading and can use wisdom. And so he immediately then receives the thought, oh, gods, this man is worth far more alive than dead. <laughs> and, and it's true to have a king as advisor to you who has become a slave would be of the utmost value, especially one who has met with Solon. And, and just something else very interesting about that, it's just, it reminds me a good deal of the Old Testament as well in that uh, the whole reason that Croesus comes to fail, and it's very Oedipal in this way, it's, it's as if the game cannot be won, and the game cannot be won in terms of being <clears throat> prosperous for all times. And that's that's the point of Oedipus, and I would say also this Croesus story and also the Merchant of Baghdad story. Um, but, that, um, but that what happened to him was the result of an illicit affair that happened five generations before him when the King Caldales showed off the beauty of his wife to his advisor, who then got the option to kill Caldales or to himself die. And so he chose, of course, to now become husband to the beautiful wife. And because he was the illegitimate ruler, that is why mm -hmm. uh, through five generations, Mm -hmm. his people were cursed and that ended with Croesus. And so, yes. I mean, something Herodotus shows us there is just that we have so little conscious, we, we, our conscious wills are of course of utmost importance in the choices we make, but reality itself is such an interwoven and uh, complex fabric mm -hmm. that extends mm -hmm. over not only space and time Correct. and involves so many people and things happening that we're both conscious and unconscious of that, Things can be happening that we are totally unaware of that have a major effect on our lives. And that, well, we're just, that seems to be what Croesus ultimately learns and exemplifies to us that nothing you do can keep those things from happening, but you can understand how they happen. And that's the best thing that can happen. That's like having, I would say, the ark and the flood, as it were, um, because the flood comes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now no, that's a very interesting. Um, I find I find that a little bit. Um, what 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 should I call it? Um, um, a little bit terrifying, uh, right? If, yeah, of um, course. Yeah. Yes. yes if, Herod if Herodotus is is correct here, and it seems like uh, as you as you point out correctly, this is not something that's only voiced by Herodotus, but it's also um, in the Old Testament, and um, I think that there might be some. Uh, some evidence that it's also in the New Testament, and it seems yes. to be an idea that transcends, right? That that transcends generations and cultures, and it's something that still had currency up to, I said, a hundred years ago. I'm not sure how much currency it has now. Perhaps it's something for us to discuss as more we're every about. time we speak. More Correct. every time we speak. Correct, but but it's it's specifically the idea that you pointed out, which is the sins of our parents will have. A, a clear and direct consequence on the children and the children's children up to the fourth generation. 
Um, and I, perhaps um, we should clarify a little bit or talk a little bit about exactly what that sin looked like in Herodotus. But uh, I'm thinking of, um, and again, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Numbers 14, 8. And you'll think of, well, I must be a big reader of, <laughs> of scripture, but I'm not. Uh, I should be. I should be being at one of the most important texts of our uh, Western tradition. <laughs> you know what the, what is the old quote that a great book is a book that everyone's heard of and no one's read. So, <laughs> <laughs> Which is embarrassing. I should actually uh, be more familiar with the text. But uh, Well, we numbers, can get into that. We can get into that here. I'm pretty confident it's in Numbers, and I, I know there's. Uh, it's been repeated multiple times in the in the Old Testament, such as in Exodus. Uh, but the idea that uh, God punishes or visits the sins of one's parents down to the fourth generation, which is almost verbatim what Herodotus is doing here. Uh, <clears throat> he's suggesting that the sins of Croesus's parents or great great grandparents are the reason for or part of the reason for the failure or the fall of Croesus's reign. And I don't know how you feel about that. And, and, and it comes, and the specific sin is a sin of disobedience involving woman who is more mm -hmm. conscious than the man expects her to be. She notices mm -hmm. something without him even, or before he even notices. And so she seems to be, more, she also seems to be much cleverer than uh, her, her original consort, her original king. But, that makes me think two things. Mm -hmm. The first mm -hmm. thing is this. M many of the great men, and we should talk about what greatness is, it mm -hmm. means, that we plan to talk about Alcibiades, Caesar, Alexander. They don't have great ends. They don't just end in their bed at mm -hmm. night as old men. In fact, mm -hmm. many of these great men will not make it to that old age. I mean, even Socrates, who will be put to death by his own <laughs> people, but at least he gets to an old age. And so... Um, the fact that one comes to prominence and might die in ignominy seems, it seems even greatness does not keep one from low times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, was, was the big thing that I wanted to say there. And, uh, just remind me of your first point because I had a response to that too, but I got so involved in my own that I, no, that's fine. So, uh, the sins of one parents. Oh, excuse me. Yes. So perfect. So children. So I think that's actually just psychologically explicitly true from a developmental point of view. Because if you take the Dante view of what a sin is, it's basically an action pattern that you consciously adopted in the first place, but then put on auto drive. So you're just doing, and you can take a Piagetian stance, John Piaget, the developmental psychologist, that when you set a pattern, you keep the pattern until you come and consciously adjust it. But you are made of so many patterns that you rarely ever adjust any of your patterns. Mm -hmm. So that's why you're taught as a young person, like, you know, always do your best. Don't, mm -hmm. you know, be a crybaby, like, so that you can develop these patterns that, you know, psychologists later in your life will not have to come back and fix. But that's obviously what they do, and which is a very helpful thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I, I think one of the ways that humans learn that's a key to our success uh, in a biological way is the fact that we're highly able to imitate each other. And so, in fact, something that I've been told about what makes my classes fun, fun is that I seem to embody my characters. I, I bring them to life. And so my students engage more with that because there's more physiologically going on and they actually will have a bigger physiological response because I'm like running around <laughs> the classroom. But so 
since we easily imitate that which is present to us in the human environment, we take on the sinful action patterns and unconscious negative behaviors of our parents, which were often learned from their parents, mm. and which requires use of the logos, your own mind, your own reflective, your own Apollo-like capacity to use the light of consciousness to burn those sins away. Mm. But otherwise, they don't go away. They become intergenerational qualities because it requires real effort and conscious pain, not only to see those sorts of patterns in yourself, but then to fix them. And I mean, being an athlete for the vast majority of my life, that is the vast majority of what an athlete has to do to continually improve, to keep mm -hmm. burning away or refining action patterns and always being open to criticism uh, in, mm -hmm. in that way. And so when you said that Croesus had a moment that, remind, that seemed Apollo-like, if Apollo is the god of revelation, of the sun coming out over the clouds, whereas his father brings the clouds, he brings the sun out. He is the sun and the sun, as it were, um, himself being the son of Zeus, the great mighty godson of Zeus, um, whereas Athena, who is actually, according to Carl Carini, stronger than uh, um, Apollo, is uh, the number two, which is an odd thing about Greek mythology. But the idea that a revelation would be represented by Apollo, um, by Apollo um, sort of, sending light to a person mm -hmm. or, or, or enlightening them <laughs> yes, now, is, I think, a good idea. Now, well, do you, uh, do you um, think that Herodotus is, um, well, do you think that Herodotus is doing this deliberately? He's beginning the story of Croesus. So it, it seems from what you're just saying that this is, this is the case. I want, I want to, um, I want to, make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. Do you think that Herodotus is setting up the story and beginning with uh, the great, great, great grandfather of Croesus, Condalis, um, for that reason, to point out this uh, cross-generational uh, breaking of boundaries in terms and subsequent conversion that comes from um, that revelation that um, Croesus receives? Or is there any significance in starting with this particular sin? And there's, that's, I'm really wrestling with that right now, which is what is the significance of beginning the story and then having the climax of the story be um, the possible, what we're calling the first death of Croesus? Well, yeah, I think, I think some Herodotus is doing here is showing the complexity of life and, sh and trying to give like a great storyteller, a great swathe of, of how what happens happens. And his, his way of telling a story is sort of the way that a good lecturer lectures. He says, well, this is what we're going to talk about, but well, in order to talk about that, we have to talk about this first. And well, if we're going to talk about that, that reminds me of this. Yes. And you, you know, know, this, this is a good story about this. And then he'll sort of wrap back around and it. You have to really keep a lot in mind all at once, but that's precisely because there are so many factors going into everything that's happening all at once that um, that it, it, it's very tough to keep it straight. And in fact, to even try and simply perceive an event as simply linear mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. simply or uh, solipsistically uh, mm -hmm. because of one's own actions is to miss how things work. 
mm. in this world that you play a place that you have a place and in fact that is something the oracle says right to Croesus you yes. got three more years of freedom because of all of this you're lucky mm-hmm. actually and so and that also mm-hmm. gives the idea of like relative prosperity right it's like well eventually you become a slave but you did get three years more freedom than you could have had and nobody gets to be prosperous at all times and you know when if we ever go through the Iliad together that's a constant theme of those who become slaves and end up um, coming for ritual purification mm-hmm. to uh, Iliadic kings or in particular in the Odyssey with um, Theoclimenus coming and seeking help from um, Telemachus and so um, yeah well th- so that's a uh, somebody yeah. and, and even even of course Eumaeus uh, the, the pig the, the herdsman who had been from royal blood the, the story seems to be that or why I think Herodotus would start with this man is that this man is in some way representative of all men, that he experiences the full spectrum of humanity, the top king to the bottom slave, and thus all men have something in common with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, but I raised the question because you, you did mention, um, I think, something that strikes a chord with at least how I've interpreted the text, which is uh, that there are these psychological patterns that have been internalized and that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to look for. So if, if we look at the specific sin of Kandalis, for example, uh, which is that he fell in love with his own wife so much so that he wants to prove it to his most trusted. Um, I think it's his, his advisor, or one of his soldiers in the guard. And, and it's actually his advisor who's the the ancestor. Mm-hmm, uh, correct. Priest, that's right. Sorry. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Yeah. It's not Kondalis. It's Gyges. Gyges. Yes. Yes. And yeah. thus the story of the ring of Gyges mm-hmm. that we'll have to talk about at some point in Plato. We see where that comes from here in Herodotus. So the, the, so, so the sin is Gyges sin. Excuse me. So Gyges, um, Kondalis asks Gyges to hide behind a screen while his wife is undressing, while Kondalis' wife is undressing, and to look for himself how beautiful she is. Now, this, I'm trying to find some kind of connection between that and Croesus's, um, I wouldn't call it a lust, but some kind of obsession with his own riches. And um, it, it seems that the first thing he wants Solon to do is to see for himself how much riches he has amassed. So I, I'm wondering if yes. there's a connection there between the two. Well, if broadly, I think you might be able to see the connection as the thing which you take most pride in blinds you to that which will destroy you. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, because on the one hand, Caldales uh, uh, takes so much pride in the beauty of his wife that he wants to share, but it's precisely because he shares it that he destroys himself. And um, with Croesus, he believes that he can bribe the gods, and when he receives from the gods. Mm-hmm. And, and the only, well, he believes that two of the oracles are 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 uh, legitimate. The Amphiaraeus one, and he's one of the seven against Thebes, mm-hmm. who sees his own death and then dies, and also the one at Delphi. And he believes he can bribe the gods and then receives a favorable report from Delphi that he will that a great army will fall. And so it's because of his own 
love of that which gives him status, his own wealth, his own that which buys him assurance in the in the world. It is because of his own need for self-assurance and desire for self-assurance that he fails to see that he's not actually receiving self-assurance. Yes. Um, from uh, from the or he falls victim to sort of the confirmation bias, I suppose you might say. <laughs> um, in the same way that the 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 king does, believing that mm-hmm. because he thinks it's a good idea, it is a good idea. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yes I I like also the idea that a bad idea is what starts all of this as well (laughs) an illicit idea going against custom Mm -hmm. in order to um, to what what is he doing by showing the beauty of his wife it's not an act of munificence it is a, a, a humiliation to her, and so it is an act of tremendous, extraordinary pride. Look at what I've got that no one else gets, mm-hmm. is what he's doing here. He's like the boy who invites you over to watch him play his awesome video game system. Um, <laughs> or the man who let invites you to the feast so you can smell it. Yes. Um, and so he gets what he deserves. Um <laughs> And then his wife says, okay, well, he, he dealt you that hand, and so here, here are the consequences. Kill him or, or, or die yourself. And so he, he decides he doesn't want to yeah, die. Yeah. Just, it's, one of, it's, it's really one of the most powerful. I think it's, uh, in terms of female characters in the text, is one of the most powerful uh, examples of um, the power that women wield um, in, this, in this world. And also the power of morality too, mm-hmm. because it, it strikes one that like, again, the, like the old Testament and potentially also in parts of the new Testament, like you said, the, the idea of the immoral action and illicit action mm-hmm. like this could have repercussions across, across several generations, kind of like Cain first killing. And then his, uh, his descendant Tubal Cain creating weapons of war yes. that could kill 70 fold that again, these action patterns, mm-hmm. these sinful or these negative or violent action patterns unfold over time. And it's as if the initial action, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The effects will manifest in time, which is almost like, you know, why, you know, dare programs should have been like, listen, it's not the first time. It's, the fact that once you set this pattern, it becomes very hard to alter it. And yeah. it can actually get to where it's very, very hard, almost impossible to alter yes. it. And, and so what I, I see there is that it's Herodotus is not suggesting that immoral actions or moral actions are irrelevant, or, or, but rather the opposite, that they are of massive relevance. And they have consequences, consequences and repercussions that echo throughout time and uh, in ways that are so complex that they are almost impossible to perceive in real time and require somebody to present them in a history and a story for us, almost suggesting that how reality unfolds is like a story. And so the best encapsulation of how things work isn't simply, you know, cause, effect, cause, effect, in like that one-to-one ratio, because that's not actually how anything happens, right? Because there are like a million cause and effects happening all at once. And so you have to see the trends of them and then congeal them into uh, like stories or words and tales, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I can certainly see how one um, illicit act leads to another. Um, in this case, very, very quickly, um, the, <laughs> act of, <laughs> the act of actually seeing the, um, the nakedness or the nudity of the queen leads to the killing of the king. Um, and I, I find it interesting that the way in which this second act is committed is kind of resembles the first um, at, at his most vulnerable uh, moment, when he is in his own bed, uh, when he is in the confidence of his wife and asleep. And has likely lain with her. That yes. is. Yes. Yes. He's and, with her, that's right. So he has been at sort of the apex of his kingly existence with his beautiful queenly wife and is now in his moment of perfect security, believing that everything is okay. And what is about to happen to him? Well, he, like a nightmare, Gyges, like a nightmare, is going to come and kill him. But no nightmare, but Gyges, just like Ajax slaying Rasus, king of the Thracians. Yes, and, and he takes the is. kingship. He is and now he takes- on the throne. He has the queen as his wife, which in her mind, which I find also very interesting, in her mind, this is a uh, restoring of balance and harmony, which the first act seemed to have violated. Yes, also showing that a king is subject to morality, a king is subject to the principles of nature, and, a, and that, in fact, it seems that the morality is derived from the principles of nature rather than vice versa. It's that this was a custom that was seen as very important and is upheld precisely because of its importance, and apparently part of that importance is that a woman must maintain her dignity in order to have her power and effect in society. And mm-hmm. at that time, it, it's important enough for her to have her husband, who is the king, killed and for her to feel justified and apparently everybody else to feel justified it too, mm-hmm. about it too. And it's also a microcosm. What happens to Croesus? This guy goes from top to bottom, boom, immediately. But he doesn't stay alive as a wise man and living example of how this can happen mm-hmm. in the way that mm-hmm. Croesus does, like Athelstan does mm-hmm. in the Viking series. Yeah. I, I want to point out that Herodotus does say, and in case uh, some of, I mean, one of the, I guess, main attacks <clears throat> against the history of, of our, our Western history is that um, it is overtly misogynist and it is um, demeaning of women. But I think Herodotus points out, I don't think, I've actually, it's here on the text, he does point out that according to the these Lydians or early Lydians, um, even looking at the nudity of a man was seen as a great offense, not just a woman's. Uh, in this case, it's a woman's, of course, but there is, there is this notion, which I also find very interesting uh, in talking about moral acts and deriving the idea of how to behave from, from nature. Uh, the idea that our nudity somehow is best kept uh, a secret as opposed to uh, on display. It, or am I misreading Herodotus here? I, I think that's a good idea. And again, I see an Old Testament correlate there. Of course, mm-hmm. the old man who has his three sons and the one son who sees his, his genitals and doesn't cover them or looks at them rather than walking backwards and curses that son. I forget precisely who that was. Maybe you could, yeah, in my mind, we can look it up. It's Ham. Very good. Mm-hmm. And um, so... Let's see. The idea that I'm sorry, thinking about that just got me a little bit off track. Um, let's see. 
So, sorry, one more time, please. Yes, yeah, sir. So um, we we have uh, the queen who's who goes unnamed. Interestingly enough, she. she um, okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now yeah. I see. So 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 one thing odd about humans is that we walk upright, and so we expose what's most vulnerable to to us to each other, mm. and so we wear clothing in order to offer like a sort of thin veil against the fact that we're vulnerable. And so we are all the emperor with the new clothes on, right? Because it's like a a dress or some jeans are going to make you less vulnerable. It's like, no, that's not a coat of armor. And even that's not perfect. And so, (laughs) and so what actually keeps us from being super vulnerable is the fact that we trust each other. Mm -hmm. We all act right around each other. And so, and so, well, so that, that seems to be the sort of interesting idea that is being conveyed here from nature, that mm-hmm. trust. It is, um, it's not so much that we have a physical adaptation, um, that we do have some, some, some helpful ones, like we see very, very well for primates. Uh, we see just as well. Uh, or we, the only creature that sees better than us or type of creature is predatory birds. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see well. And we also have the whites of our eyes, which enable us to track each other's eyes and also becomes part of custom and that like say you look into people's eyes when you're talking to them or shaking their hands um or trying to read them during a poker game which is an interesting game where you try and lie to people and you're (laughs) considered good if you can because Mm -hmm. it's so hard to lie to people but i don't know if i'm getting out on a a giant tangent again oscar it's some these uh these fireside chats so late at night i i wax poetic <laughs> you're fine I, th- I think you were getting at something there uh but but the original point was um uh, we don't trust each other enough i think to actually walk around naked uh you were making the point that uh what we can derive from this is that there is trust i think that there is but just enough to where we still clothe our most vulnerable parts and we veil them and we keep them um we keep them private. Are you there, Alex? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully I didn't, you didn't I didn't throw you off on another tangent there. Um no, go ahead. No, 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 no. No, but uh that that was good. Sorry, I just lost you for for one second there. Um but yeah, so you were saying we were saying that, that humans are tall, they're they're vulnerable. Well, so the the thing is that as much and as much as we trust each other and as much as we use society and any implement necessary to make ourselves comfortable and feel safe, what we're always vulnerable to are the changes in fate that time has in store for us. Mm. That what seems to be like part of the fall of the fall in the Old Testament story the coming to consciousness of self-consciousness of the future of suffering and death, right? That okay. creates anxiety in one's heart. Well, that's the same thing that Herodotus seems to be showing here as well, that there's no wealth you can have that can keep you from going from wealthy to poor king to slave, except for the wealth of wisdom, which is, which can help you even more as a slave than it did when you were a king because Croesus becomes a slave or advisor to a greater king than himself who can then use his wisdom to do more good in the world, suggesting that wisdom is that phenomenon or that 
uh, that ability, that gift that transcends the dominance hierarchy, that is a mm-hmm. gift to all when it is present in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And that is, in fact, what Herodotus say, says that the Greeks thought that they had on others, right? That those those Dorians and those Ionians who become those Spartans and those those uh, Athenians and those Athenians who apparently at some point had had to learn an entirely new language. They were so smart. They all thought themselves very clever indeed. And so they very much disliked it when the Athenians very much disliked it the one time they were ever tricked into getting a tyrant, Pesistratos, who became a tyrant three times. And I thought that was very clever that <laughs> what, what they hated most happened to them. And so we see a, a story of great ironies, right? The smartest people get tricked. The most powerful people become slaves. And what we're supposed to access from this, I think, is wisdom or the ability to understand that we can be thrown from a great situation into a bad situation. And what makes you a great man is rising to whatever situation you happen to be in and embodying your role as well as possible. Because it, even at the point of death, Croesus does something so incredible that a miracle appears to happen. Who knows what the relationship between the miracle and his his saying of Solon was, or whether there's any. Um, but he he embodies this heroic understanding, this coming of consciousness so great that his life is spared mm-hmm. so that he can offer more insight or wisdom into the world so valuable has his perspective become. Almost suggesting that the great thing about being a great person is the span that your life might take from hero to zero and possibly back to zero again um, that you offer yourself sort of like a constellation in the sky as an exemplar of every possible existence a human can have. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now now this wisdom, Alex, that uh, Croesus um, all of a sudden seems to express. Now it, it, it seems, I mean, if, uh, if you read it linearly, it almost seems unbelievable. Here's a man who's, who is portrayed as greedy, overreaching, lacking in wisdom, trying to bribe the gods or the Delphic oracles um, into, into gaining a favorable outcome. And yet, from one day to another, now he is the advisor. He's certainly a slave. It's not the best, um, in terms of status, it's certainly not the best place to be on the totem pole. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, he's now the wise guy, right? He, he's the sage. Um, well, it strikes, so, it strikes right. yeah, it strikes me that what the shift that happens is that it's not that anybody doesn't have all the material in their life and in their mind necessary to be wise. Mm-hmm. It's just that they haven't constellated it in the right way to make appropriate use of it. Yes, so yes. Mm-hmm. there's something that Camus has his character and the stranger say while he's sitting in his jail cell after having killed the man that if any man were to think very hard on one day of his life, he would have something to think about for the rest of his life. <laughs> Indicating mm-hmm. that Croesus was unwise precisely because he refused to be wise. He wanted so much 
for there to be no way possible for him to fall that he refused to see the fact that he could fall, which kept him from being wise. Mm -hmm. If he could have understood that he could fall at the height of his fame, perhaps he wouldn't have or would not have in the same way. But in so falling, he understood the, the wisdom of Solon and thus said his name. He understood that even the mighty could fall brought low, but now, you know, with a halo on his head because of his full perspective. And so he, well, that's what I have to say on that. Yes, yes. Um, now, it, it would seem that the, uh, there was one idea, however, if we're talking about causes, the immediate cause to the conversion or to the, to the change of heart, if you will, uh, or this transformation into the sage was the word were the words of Solon. Now they seem to percolate over time. It doesn't seem as if um, they don't hit him immediately until that moment before he's about to die. Um, and if you're talking about a constellation of, of ideas or patterns or categories in the mind or psychological patterns, uh, it, it seems like this constellation falls into place perfectly just at that moment when that idea well Right, the original idea or the idea of Solon seems to be the, the, the immediate cause or the converting factor that makes that happen. It's coming true, coming to fruition in life here, no longer simply as word, but as represented reality, as experiential reality, actually, for, hmm. for Croesus. Because what is it that Solon talked about? Well, two men who had good lives and then died and he becomes angrier and angrier when he's listening to this and he says why am i not the happiest and it's basically the reason <laughs> is call no man happy until he's he is dead. dead and as he's about to die with these 14 others having lost having misinterpreted a prophecy now uh ab about to endure a fate he would have never ever expected well <laughs> Well, um, now he sees the wisdom of Solon's <laughs> words. Yes. He sees that he, because of his unhappy end now, mm -hmm. he could not be properly called happy at that time. And in fact, he had to live with great anxiety because of it. And because he, as he is dying, he realizes that he's going to have an unhappy end. He understands that what Solon was conveying through telling mm -hmm. these stories is that you just have to live in the way that you live while recognizing mm -hmm. that things can change on a dime, no matter who you are, no matter how much you have amassed at any particular time. In fact, suggesting that he has an idea of human nature, that what you have currently acquired is not who you are, mm -hmm. so much as your ability to acquire or your ability to transform a situation from bad to better, mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. uh, that which enabled someone like Croesus to generate his wealth. That is what is most important about him, not the wealth he has. And uh, because that is what will make a bad situation better for him, which mm -hmm. he actually literally demonstrates in real time by yelling out Solon, indicating that he now understands the wisdom of Solon, indicating that he is now capable of mm -hmm. wisdom. And yelling it um, three times, it, it almost seems like an invocation, some kind of, um, some kind of prayer. Yeah, it's like a hallelujah or or like a like um uh the Archimedean the Eureka. Mm -hmm. I ha I have found an exclamation, a revelation as it were. It's mm -hmm. as if the difference mm -hmm. between a revelation and a syllogism is that a revelation like we've been talking about is the realization of a 
in a specific instance of a giant underlying pattern. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, seeing the existence of that pattern and thus having that pattern expand one's breadth of consciousness by showing one um, a chain of events and how things work that one was previously completely unaware of. Mm-hmm. I think, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, practically, um, it, it is a message of hope, I would think, uh, for teachers uh, teaching incalcitrant students or parents, <laughs> <laughs> right? Or parents uh, facing uh, teenagers who just, uh, there seems to be nothing else that can be done to bring them back from their own hell, which is these words will have some kind, if they're true words and if they're wise words, uh, can have and might have, even if it's unto, unto the end of life, unto death, uh, can have a transformative and redemptive effect on those who receive them. And it also seems to be a message that conflicts with the uh, that otherwise saying, which is, uh, don't cast your pearls to swine. I, I think that this story, at least in my mind, suggests that we should. We should cast our pearls to swine all the time uh, in, hopes that, um, in hopes that they will, they will see some light in the end. Um, that, uh, that is an interesting thing to say. I, I, I do see the conflict in those two ways of thinking. On the one hand, mm-hmm. you do want you do not want to devalue what you say by telling it to people who do not want to listen. Correct. On the other hand, uh, you might need to say something to somebody that they don't fully comprehend the full weight of in the moment that you say it as well. So you might say something that's slightly above their level of understanding, uh, the Vygotsky level of or zone of proximal development, as it were, often quoted by Peterson. So I think, I think there's a slight difference in, in those expressions like um, don't cast pearls before swine, as in don't, don't try to have an articulate or sophisticated conversation with somebody who's going to refuse to listen <laughs> at, 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 at all, because then you devalue what it is you have to say. You devalue yes. the product, right? You know, you, if you have like a very specific sort of diamond that nets a very specific sort of value, you require a very specific connoisseur to see that value. Mm-hmm. And so- I see it like that, but I totally agree with you that one should not lose hope, especially as a parent or educator, that one doesn't see an immediate effect. I think in the support fields like ours, it's especially important to understand the importance of the marshmallow test. And so the marshmallow test is you get one marshmallow now, or you can have two marshmallows in 10 minutes. And another variant might be you can have three after like 30 minutes. (laughs) And so can you put off current satisfaction um, in order to have more satisfaction in the future? And in fact, Aristotle's ethics is sort of just a more advanced version of this idea. Can you eventually make the pursuit of that satisfaction, the satisfaction itself, understanding that the image of the future that you use is, Mm. uh, is precisely an image? from the imagination like a mirage but that it is the work itself which is of value and so in in teaching in the support fields even if it seems like we're making no progress the fact that we simply are doing anything is magical a that we have an education system and educators 
teaching everybody, even where there are failures, just the fact that we have something like this going at, you know, at a federal level in every state, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is that our results, like I think veteran teachers understand and perhaps veteran parents and perhaps us with time, Mm -hmm. is that, again, results unfold in time. And that if we're doing a good job, good things will happen over time. We will know the the students by their fruits, by mm-hmm. their actions. And in a As, way, yeah, uh, yeah. In a way, our teachers resemble uh, Moses, who lead the people to the promised land, but never actually make it to the promised land themselves. They might not. Yes, see and and splits the, the Red Sea the, of unconsciousness and shows the way, the impossible way through, right? Um, and yes, yeah. So the teachers, we're, we're the gardeners. Now we don't necessarily live to see the next iteration of the goal coming to spring of it, but the gift is the fact that we get to be a part of the maintenance of the, mm-hmm. the garden, that we can be Aristotelian in that respect. Mm-hmm. We can love the work itself, understanding that, well, it's, it's somewhat simplistic just to imagine yes. that one's future it's like in the future, things will be good. It's like, no, the best you can ever have is trying to make things good in the present. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's as good as it ever gets, as we've seen from <laughs> creases. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just want to be careful about uh, talking about teachers so universally or so categorically sure. uh, in an expansive way, because um, I think similar to creases, our education today, and I know everyone... Everyone has something to say about education nowadays, but uh, this this strikes well, me as... Well, you are an educator, so <laughs> you should have something to say. Um, the priority is not wisdom, Alex. It's not that uh, flourishing of the garden, as you were pointing out. Um, it, it seems more of a preparing our students for a career or... Well, that's, I, I say that's precisely because people don't understand the value of wisdom. The wisdom has practical application in the world, and the fact that anything exists is because of wisdom. The fact that we create tools in order to uh, solve problems that we have is wisdom. And the better problem solvers, the more aware students we have, human citizens we have, the better things are going to be, and the better they're going to be at any possible career. Mm. All they'll have to do is spend time learning the facts of the job, which uh, contemporary reports suggest that even... with jobs that you come into trained, it takes three years to learn how to do your job appropriately. Mm -hmm. You can get hands-on training at the job. So, I I mean, so when we think of wisdom as a luxury, I'd say that often it seems to be attached to luxury in the ways that luxury is often attained by the wealthy who are often highly skilled and intelligent, Mm -hmm. um, that that's appropriate. But that wisdom, wisdom is of massive necessity because it gives perspective to attention to potentially an entire people which gives them a focus mm-hmm. or a goal which unifies their wills and gives them a unified purpose and set of actions and therefore base um sort of ethic or morality by which to respect each other as they move towards this uniform goal it's mm-hmm. i think something people are deeply hungry for and so i feel wisdom and this is why the intellectual dark web, I think, is catching on. And these long-form conversations like the ones we're having, people are hungry 
for wisdom. They're not, wisdom seems not to be present in the schools, not to be present in the universities, not to be uh, present in traditional institutions in the way that it was. And so the practical value of it, I think, is being seen in the fact that people are now aching for it. It's like, so I heard Jordan B. Peterson on Joe Rogan earlier say that he's met 150,000 people in the last two months. And what he does is give lectures. He's like a boring old man from Canada who sounds like Kermit and everybody loves him. And I've, I've probably listened to every lecture he's ever given. I've read both of his books and I'm listening to one of his books now. And I've also read much of what he recommends to read Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, uh, a billion wicked thoughts, uh, much of Jung, Freud. And so I think wisdom has been made out to be something interesting at cocktail parties, but that that is a very pale version of wisdom. That is sort of the ironic hipster, uh, solipsistic scholar vision of what wisdom is, that thing that can't be attained that's simply to be spoken of but never embodied. No, yeah, well, I think people want the real thing. <laughs> I think they do. I, I want to believe with you that that's the case, but I think that the... Uh... The reality of it is a little more ominous. Uh, just to ask you a question, I mean, just just to test this out. When was the last time you heard? Well, perhaps uh, because you you uh, hang out in circles that are more on the philosophic side, you might you might hear this more often. But outside of those circles, when was the last time you heard someone talk of wisdom as something that was um, desirable, or even use the word? wisdom it doesn't seem to be in our language anymore i, I can't recall I, the last I, time that I, I agree but i think the most important thing is to embody wisdom to do wise things to do intelligent things that are supportive of the general community around you I see. not 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 simply to be capable of having good discussions about wisdom i think that's important as well but um even if you can't articulate what wisdom is and you don't have a personal care about like athena and the owl and wisdom that as accompanies the divinity above the abyss of the waters. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, uh, I think you can be wise, but I, I, I agree that we're becoming small minded. It seems that we, mm -hmm. we're, we're thinking that if we simply, pr well, if think about it like this, if what we view, view as career training is more important than training problem solving, we're only preparing students for jobs that already exist. And so I think that is an important, I think vocational training is something we should do for people that probably need to work in those sorts of sectors. Of course, mm -hmm. IQ is a real estimate. And there are people, uh, if there is a one to a hundred uh, scale on the IQ, it's actually one to over 200 or something like that. Then there are going to be 50% people above average and then 50% below or 49, 51 or whatever. And so the people at the lower end of that distribution are not going to be the people working as rocket scientists mm -hmm. or at Google. They're going to probably go into more received fields like manual labor sorts of fields um, or vocational fields, fields that require often more risk but often pay more, according to Warren Farrell. And so I think vocational training is important, but we need to separate the vocational training from the traditional sort of schools and also have a focus on the wisdom training mm -hmm. as well. Those people who, who want to be innovators, who want to think mm -hmm. and take risks and put their ideas um, uh, to, the, um, to the test. 
And I think in trying to have it both ways and trying to, to, to just sort of mix all of our schools to where we don't have necessarily uh, a, a wisdom-based, uh, like say, uh, literature program or, or any vocational training, any mechanical training, any economic training like we used to, that it's almost as if we're losing both effective <laughs> styles of learning and generating one ineffective <laughs> style of learning that we're trying to push everybody into precisely yes. because we're unwilling to recognize real scientific truths that we have over a hundred years of literature on. Correct. And I didn't, I didn't mean so much that we should have um, lofty conversations about what wisdom is. I'm, I'm even asking for something a little more basic than that. I, I want to hear the parent at Walmart tell his son, uh, son, I want you to be wise. This is something to, um, this is something to strive for. Just like we tell our children, you should be kind, you should share, you should be uh, nice to others. You should be right. We, there is a set uh, number of modern virtues, if you will, that we try to instill in our children, but I don't hear parents saying really the, the aim of your life should be wisdom. If there's anything that you, you gain, if there's anything that I do well, I hope it's that you are wise uh, by the time you're an adult. It's uh, well, go ahead. Well, and I think you're going uh, in the right direction in order to help that. If, if that which we fail to see in the world, it is our duty to produce in the world, then mm -hmm. perhaps through becoming very famous through these podcasts, um, <laughs> people will aim towards Correct. being wise. And well, you know, honestly, that is a beautiful thing to want for the child, sort of like Hector wanted for his child, a CNX, that, mm -hmm. that he have the wisdom congealed from the experience of those who were great before him, that mm -hmm. he be able to drink the, the sort of aqua vitae from the philosopher's stone that could to, to drink wisdom from the experience of those who came before. And that mm. seems to be what true wisdom is. And perhaps as educators and teaching great books and, mm. and having these sorts of conversations, we are ourselves congealing or distilling down the experiences we have experienced or, or at least uh, sharing the wisdom that we have received mm. um, in the particular way that we have, we've received it and the, and the ways that it has shifted and altered and enhanced and focused our perspectives. So, so it's almost as if your complaint is a self, creates a self-fulfilling prophecy, Oscar Ortiz, <laughs> that if, if that's what you want to hear when you're at the Walmart, then let's make sure that uh, that which we have to offer is so popular that it makes its way into... Uh, <laughs> Certainly... The, yeah, to yes. to all to all sectors of life. Well, to bring it back to Croesus, I um, yeah, of course, I, I do I do think that uh, as in agreement with you, this is what he exemplifies. He exemplifies in his in his earlier life, uh, which I'm which I call the older the old man, um, mm -hmm. the old self. He exemplifies an inversion of uh, what what should truly be loved and aspired for, which he. he it's material wealth. I mean, he, he's greedy. He, he goes, he extends beyond uh, what is uh, customarily right. And um, it's this conversion where he realizes, or he arranges this hierarchy of values, if you will, correctly. 
um, and seems to put wisdom where it should be. So the question then becomes, oh, there's two questions, right? Well, the first one is, how do we do that in a country that might have its, um, his values inverted or upside down? And is, was Croesus happy afterwards? <laughs> well, I see, I look, yeah, I look at the, I look at the, um, the conditions under which his son Athos died. So he took in a character, Adrastus, who had killed his own brother through no fault of his own. And then he mm-hmm. received in the dream, a dream, a prophecy that his son would die by iron. He then yes. married his son and tried to keep his son from going out to hunt this wild, I believe, boar uh, that was mm-hmm. terrorizing mm-hmm. The, the, the countryside. And the, the son was, he tried to keep him home. And he said, no, don't go. And the son said, why can't I go? I'm not a coward and I've never shown myself not to be skilled. And why is it? And so Croesus says, oh, I had this dream of spear that iron would kill you. And he says, well, no boar ever <laughs> had a spear. And so he's then sent down to, uh, to go against the boar. And uh, a circle is made around the boar. And everybody throws and addresses us, oh, with this terrible luck. And he warned Croesus against this terrible luck. He throws with his spear and he kills Addis. Terrible. And so what this, this, this situation shows symbolically in the life of Croesus is that his short-sightedness or his inability to understand his present situation will lead to him sacrificing the future for the present. And that's part of his overall yes. life philosophy that's wrong, that in his greed for wealth and mm-hmm. his greed for having things one way and not seeing the other, he fails to see, um, he, he, is, his, he fails to see the full perspective and thus his short-sightedness brings about his own downfall and so so what i would say in a broad way we could work on doing is again not failing the marshmallow test (laughs) but being able to take a longer perspective in fact the image that i have for this this segment is octavian who has a small boy with an egg underneath him there which is very similar to virgil's fourth eclogue it's the coming of a new age through a thought being implemented in reality through the appropriate governing leader pointing the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that if you can take a long view, you can achieve great things in your life, especially if those around you take a long view as well. And in fact, that seems to be the big difference between humans. Take a short view, corruption happens fast, failure comes quickly. Take a long view, and things work much, much better. Um, now, by a long view, do you mean um, an, an extension of your own life into the future or a broader view as in including all of humanity? I, I mean the former, and the latter will be a more interesting thing to take account of because it's not as flat as that, right? Mm-hmm. With not only different cultures, but differing nations and differing peoples with different philosophies and differing lives how to account for them within the scope of one's own life when we're, you know, simple primates who can only account for what something like 250 people within a group at a time is what Mm -hmm. the studies show. That's going to be much, much tougher, but, um, accounting. So Jean Piaget, who I mentioned earlier was a developmental psychologist was known for having an idea called the equilibrated state, which is where that, which you're doing, you could do essentially in a Kantian way, like categorical imperative over and over, for the rest of time 
and that that would be good for you, your family, your community, your city, your country, and potentially the world because of that. And so that's what I mean as the long view, not doing something that is temporary or isolated for the moment or impulsive that simply um, that you could do once, but if you were to iterate it, and we've been talking about patterns, it would destroy you or your community or your people if, say, we were to focus on changing one aspect of how people look at the world. I would say the more people who attempt to individuate or equilibrate their state and that around them, who essentially metaphorically clean their room by cleaning their house, cleaning up their lives, mm -hmm. the, the better we'll be without any governing philosophy, right? Because it doesn't matter what one's politics are there or what one's read. One simply adopting an attitude of attempting to improve things on into the future in a sustainable way, regardless of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that's essentially what Herodotus is saying is the only thing that can get you through life because certainly you're going to have some curveballs thrown at you if you're anything like Croesus, which probably we all are, seeing as that's how he starts his work called Histories. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, um, that's interesting. That's interesting, Alex. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, I was thinking, um, I was thinking about it differently. Um, yeah. I was thinking about it in terms of um, almost the Stoic principle mm. of um, uh, not only uh, abnegation, but self, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, Self-denial, almost. Yeah. This, um, uh, this resorting to simply accepting your fate and embracing it. Uh, and not necessarily even even preparing for it, um, but practicing detachment from the world, and as such being unmoved by whatever fortune brings your way. And I I think that there is a good case to be made that this could that is this that is this is an argument that can be made from the text. Um, it and it kind of does unfold through time. It does become a popular um, uh, philosophy, if you will. Um, I'm not sure how successful it is. I mean, it's, it seems to be ultimately nihilistic um, and depressing. But I am, I'm, that's, that's how I read it. So I see Croesus and, and think to myself, his attachment to things and you could even say maybe an attachment to viewing the world as something potentially um, manipulative, manipulable, something that you can sh shape, shift, or malleable um, <clears throat> might be the cause or the reason for those curveballs or surprises, unpleasant surprises. Well, I think, I think the, the sort of current conception of Stoic, it, Stoicism is a sort of corruption of Plato's uh, Socrates saying that life should be preparation for death. Mm -hmm. And that if taken in just a sort of mundane way, that could be seen, of course, cynically, like, okay, well, what's the point of life if you're just going to die? But the other way is that life should be, life should be preparation for death, as in you should live life so boldly and adventurously that when death comes, it's, it's no matter. And I, I, see, I see Stoicism more in the high... 
the high virtue way that um, that Virgil that Virgil explains it that um, stoicism, like like the winds of Aeolus being bound by Neptune, that what that what stoicism is is the great use of reason or consciousness to bind the motivational forces within the emotional forces within and that with the emotional forces get out of control when rage gets out of control, whether it be Achilles or Turnus as a second Turnus or even Aeneas as a third Achilles there that um, uh, tragedy, tragedy can strike and that um, stoicism sees that the massive power uh, sees that emotion has massive power. that can ruin entire peoples through its actions. And so, Mm -hmm. In that respect, I would say that Croesus certainly recognizes that when a motivational force like, say, lust, which Dante has quite a bit to say about overcome somebody, that it has repercussions throughout the future. And so I would say that I see hints of a good stoicism in him, Mm -hmm. but not him attempting to simply be cynical, nor do I think him saying that somebody can go from rags to riches and from riches to ruin. I don't think that's cynical so much as just explaining um, in a humanistic or even Christian way that (laughs) the only thing one has that one can keep while one's alive is one's consciousness, one's wits, sort of like what Athena says to Odysseus when he returns to Ithaca. It's because you keep your mind that I have so much love for you, um, that one can keep one's wisdom or what one has been through, but that nothing else under the sun has has quite that value and well per, perhaps we'll see that hmm when i we first started this podcast the great men podcast i wondered what it was that would make men great and so i wonder if what will make them great and worthy of story and worthy of continuing through this podcast with you will be the fact that the span of actions that they take whether good or evil we're so great that they expand our conception of what humans are. There's this, there's this quote by Eric Neumann in the origin and history of consciousness that says that of witches and wizards, they cared not whether they were dark or light, but just how powerful their effect was. And I talked about that some in my lectures on Harry Potter and in the conversations with Wes and Sarah. And so what makes one great may not be that one is good or evil, which are of course important things to keep in mind as well, but that one does things that are so unique or different or extreme that they offer wisdom to those of us who come after them in a way that other lives and stories do not. Mm-hmm. At least I suppose that's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> that is the hope, yes. Or, or they stand above us as judges. <laughs> mm. Yeah, like how we tremendous super today. egos in the sky. <laughs> That's right. Well, well, Mr. Oscar Ortiz, this has been a very pensive conversation. So I have one question remaining. You mm-hmm. you had expressed sort of an interest in talking about Cyrus, who you called a much greater man than mm-hmm. Croesus. And that would require some reading of us of more Herodotus mm-hmm. and his histories before jumping off into some Plutarch into or into Diogenes Laertius for Socrates and Aristotle and Plato's accounts. And so uh, is that what you would like to do for next time? I would love to do that. Absolutely. All right. And so this is your second time on the podcast and our first time doing the Great Men podcast. Um, Well, are you looking forward to more? Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate it.
I appreciate it too. I'll talk to you soon. Cyrus next time. All right. Test run, test run, test run. So Alex, for some reason, the speaker won't go off. Let's see. Give me a second. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Now, this is all I see on my screen. Uh, I'm going to take a picture of it so you see it. Okay. Um, let's see if I can send this to you. <clears throat> it probably looks like how mine does. I have to change my setting um, before I'm on the call. <clears throat> Got it. Okay, so I just sent it to you. Yeah. So How do I, I sound? By the way, this is me on speakerphone. <clears throat> yeah, you sound great. Um, oh. But I wonder, did you get my text? Yeah, I'm just now looking at it. Yeah, oh, that's just that's how mine looks. Okay, so uh, that's how. Okay, you're on speakerphone. Yeah, but I'm I'm not going to be on the regular recording. Go ahead, uh, go off speakerphone. I want to hear the difference. Okay, I'm back. Okay. Yeah, you sound a little richer. Okay. Now, for some reason, I can't do that though. How do you? How did you do that? Uh, I just put it up to my ear, and it does that. Try that. Oh. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, go ahead and talk. Mm hmm. Yeah, you're still on speakerphone for some reason. Did do I sound different? Uh, no, no, you sound the same. <laughs> okay. Well, at least. Uh, at least I know that I got the microphone closer to my mouth, so you should be able to hear me clearly. But I don't yeah, think I, can, I can hear you perfectly fine. Yeah, you have just a little echo to your voice, but it's not—it's nothing that bothers me. Okay, um, so you said that the option is on the app itself, right? Yes, when you go to that, when you just open the app mm -hmm. on the initial page, in the top right corner, there are three dots that make a vertical line. If you okay. uh, press on those dots, um, you should get four options, and two of them are speaker, and one is uh, <clears throat> like telephone, and they have to do with how you hold the phone while you're recording. Okay, so which one should I click on, the telephone one? Telephone if you want to hold it to your ear. Good, that's what I'll do. Okay. So I think that uh, I think when I heard the recording, my voice sounds a, a bit distant. Yeah, it's just a little bit like that. Okay, well, let me go ahead and uh, make that change real fast and call me in two. Okay. Thank you. Yeah.